0: February is the month of love. And yes, our theme this month is the path of love. So yeah, we can get all Valentine's Day on the subject of love. But today I want to think about love in a different way from a different angle. And part of what I want to think about is how our culture has developed and not developed complexity in terms of understanding the concept of love. So I begin with one of our culture's foundational texts, the fifth chapter of the gospel according to Matthew which is some of our song lyrics for today. And yes, that's the one that starts with what's known as the Beatitudes, the blessed are, those and that sort of thing. But toward the end of the fifth chapter, beginning at verse 38, we hear these words which have long been purported to be the words of Jesus, saying, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, give them your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to the one who asks of you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy." But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet another uh, only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? End quote. Now, the King James Version that I grew up with uh, in the Pentecostal Church uh, uses the term publicans instead of tax collectors. And so one of my father's sayings was, we must love the Republicans and other sinners. <laughs> Go, Dad. The verses I just read have been much debated by Christians over the millennia. What does it mean to turn the other cheek? What does it mean to bless those who curse you? Who, in their right mind, would give their coat away to someone who's just taken them to court to get their shirt? Why would anyone go a second mile for someone who's just forced you to walk one mile? Seriously, you're saying I can't refuse my deadbeat uncle when he asks for more money I know he will never repay? That does appear to be what Jesus was saying. And the verses have been greatly debated uh, over many millennia. These verses led to some thinking that uh, many, even today, find extreme. They led to what's known as Christian pacifism in such movements as the Quakers and the Mennonites. And they were used by white preachers to convince enslaved African Americans to passively accept the brutality of white supremacy. On the other hand, these verses uh, led some universalists and some Unitarians, such as Henry David Thoreau, to develop his ideas concerning civil disobedience. They led Aidan Ballou, who was first a universalist minister, then became a Unitarian, to write a book called Christian Non-Resistance and another titled Practical Christian Socialism. Both of these books were greatly admired by the social activist and novelist Leo Tolstoy and by Mahatma Gandhi. That's where they got their ideas. And these verses led directly to the nonviolence used during the civil rights movement. After all, Jesus is portrayed here speaking to the poorest of the poor Palestinians in a land occupied by the mighty Roman Empire. The audience was the poorest of the poor oppressed and nearly helpless in the face of a mighty occupying empire and a Jewish puppet government that cooperated with it. In my own reading of the verses, I agree with the African-American Baptists of the early 20th century who came to see these words as a call to, if you will, weaponize love. Weaponize love. In other words, that Jesus is saying, bless those who curse you because that will really mess with their minds. After all, for African-Americans in the American South, had they openly taken up arms and fought Oppression, the Jim Crow South would have known exactly what to do because it had happened several times before. Armed revolt was easily done away with with more violence. Mahatma Gandhi faced the same choice. Armed rebellion had already been tried many times against the occupying British Empire, always with the inevitable result of a failure. Empires know how to employ violence. Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. knew, however, that governments don't know how to deal with love. Love your enemies, because that will really mess with their minds. Now, I'm on a Bible kick here, so I'm going to go a little bit more into some verses. These are famous ones from Paul in 1 Corinthians 13:1 through 8. You've heard this one. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and angels, that's a you, you, him, right? Uh, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions and if I hand over my body so that I may uh, boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. And what's probably the all-time most popular reading at weddings? Here it comes. (laughs) Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. End quote. Well, the cynic in me leads uh, me to to the conclusion that that describes no human marriage ever, right? (laughs) But we keep trying. Hope springs eternal, uh, which is a very good thing for the human species. And since I'm attempting to give credit for ideas where credit's due today, I do have to say that the British poet Alexander Pope wrote those words, hope springs eternal. The line appears in a long poem called An Essay on Man. It's talking about the nature of humanity. The rest of that verse goes like this, hope springs eternal in the human breast. Man never is, but always to be blessed. The soul, uneasy and confined from home, rests and expatiates in a life to come, which you follow along, we're always lonely here on earth because we're waiting to go to heaven and that's our real hope. Kind of the opposite of what humanists think today. But back to Paul. Notice what Paul is insisting upon in those words. Love is superior to a whole list of things, rhetoric by mortals and angels. Love is superior to prophetic powers, to the understanding of all mysteries and all knowledge and all faith. Love is superior to all material possessions. It's superior even to giving your body away, to martyrdom. Love, therefore, is really powerful stuff. Now, the challenge of deeply understanding what Paul is talking about here has to do with one of the weaknesses in the English language. English has only one word for love, which is love. Therefore, we have to put descriptive words and physical expressions uh, in front of those word, that word to get it across what we're talking about. The Greeks did not have to do that. Paul didn't have to depend on that way of writing it. But how many times has a conversation gone like this? I love you. Yes, I know, but do you love love me? Right? Or, yes, I love you, but not in that way. Right? Ancient Greek had six words that are translated into the one English word love. Agape. Eros philia, phiautia, those Greeks had uh, sometimes had difficult to say words, storge, and Zinia. Now, agape is the one that is actually in the text, and that means to will good to another. It has nothing to do with love, actually. It's to will good to another, all right? Now, There's other Greek words, eros, uh, where we get the word erotic. We know that one. Uh, It meant the same thing in Greek, actually. It was uh, erotic love, but they didn't have to say that that way. So you see, the problem with words from Paul that so many people use in weddings is that Paul isn't saying what people think he's saying because marriages are assumed to be mixing agape and eros. But Paul's writing here, has nothing to do with eros. Paul's words have to do with love for the divine or respect for other human beings. However, fact is, Paul, since he was writing in Greek, had all kinds of words to use for love. um, And that's the one he chose. Paul could have used eros, erotic love. He could have used philia, which is love between equals. It's where we get the term philial, right? He could have used philia, which means love of the self, in a non-narcissistic way. Another Greek thing, narcissus, right? He could have used storge, which is love between parents and children. He could have used xenia, which meant ritualized friendship for strangers, where we get the term xenophobia, but we don't have any nice word for that. (laughs) So you see the problem here. The English language is quite anemic when it comes to the language of love. That's why the American poet Emily Dickinson started one of her poems this way, till death, as in till death do us part, till death is narrow loving, the scantest heart extant will hold you till your privilege of finiteness be spent, she wrote. Now, you often have to, She's like Campbell's Soup. You have to put a, you know, some water in there to really get some more words in. So it's till death do us part, she says, is a narrow loving, since anybody can do that. Just as Jesus said that the Roman puppet tax collectors were capable of loving people who love them. That's easy kind of love, to love those who love you. Both Dickinson and Jesus are saying, let's take this love thing to another level. Like so many four-letter words in English, the Old English folks uh, like to keep things short and sweet, and the modern English, uh, English word love comes from Old English, loofu. right? It meant a feeling of love, romantic sexual attraction, affection, friendliness, love of God, love of distraction. Love. You get the idea. It meant the same thing it still does today, and we simply haven't added anything to it. This is a paucity in all the Germanic languages, actually. Lufu comes out of Proto-Germanic. Lubo comes from High German. And Luibi is joy, etc. So we really have a lot of uh, Germanic languages with a paucity of love that may make some of us like we are. And the word traces through Old Norse, Old Frisian, Old Saxon, Old High German, Gothic, Dutch, and Contemporary German. So... I invite you this Valentine's Day when you decide to give someone a candy heart with the word love on it to remember just how anemic that word actually can be. It's complicated. The ancient Chinese philosopher Lao Tzu writes in the Tao Te Ching, love is a decision, not an emotion. Love is a decision, not an emotion. You see how he's agreeing with Paul and Jesus on that one and Emily Dickinson. But wait. Wait. Right? A quick web search tells me that Mandarin Chinese has five words for love. So what sort of love is he talking about with that translation? Again, translating into English crashes the whole expanse of the bigger idea. Because, I mean, yeah, as English speakers, we know that love is a decision, not as emotion, isn't true for Western society people. Here, our tradition has established love first and foremost as an emotion. And not only that, but as an emotion that cannot be controlled, right? We fall in love just like we fall on the ice. And sometimes it hurts just about as much, right? So the title of my talk today is Love Without the Syrup. Now, that title makes sense in English, but in Greek and in Chinese, the phrase would make no sense. Zinnia without the syrup makes no sense, right? Uh, Why would we want to pour syrup on someone we don't know? And indeed, that famous dictum, love thy neighbor as thyself, the Greek word there also is agape. That's what is being communicated there too. Love your neighbor as yourself means treat your neighbor with deep respect. So this week I invite all of us to consciously and bravely get on the path of love in its many forms, a conscious decision, not an emotional one. And let's try to bless those who curse us. Let's try wishing the good, agape, wishing the good for one of our surly neighbors, for example. Or let's go the extra mile one more time for someone who doesn't deserve it. Let's try even loving our enemies. And if we can't do that with a warm feeling bubbling up inside us, do it anyway, because it really messes with their minds. (laughs) Thanks for listening. You can find much more about humanism, and what's happening at First Unitarian Society in Minneapolis by visiting our website at firstunitarian.org.